to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resiliency, business continuity, disaster planning, emergency response, and more, and anything that can be relatable to those topics. I'd like to remind everyone about topics that if there is something specific you would like us to talk about on the show, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please go to the Voice America website and the page for the uh, preparing for the unexpected there is a button you can send me an email saying hey i'd like to talk about such and such i do get emails i'll get back in touch with you and we'll see about uh, putting an agenda together and getting you on the show or finding someone to talk about the subject you want us to uh, talk about i will be in phoenix uh, arizona for the disaster recovery journal conference coming up september 29th and october 2nd and uh, there's a Good chance we're probably doing a live broadcast there again because uh, it went over very well last year. And today's show is brought to us by the people at Stone Road Inc. Um, and their application boast assessment where you can go online, sign up, and uh, find out how your uh, program is doing. You can monitor your own progress and find out where you need to uh, enhance your programs. And if there's uh, any advertising or sponsors you want us to uh, talk about, if you want to come on the show and talk about a product or service, please also get in touch. We have opportunities for that as well. Uh, Send me an email and we'll take care of that. For long-term listeners or even recent listeners, you have probably heard me uh, talk with a a guest twice already now. Our first topic, we talked about lessons learned uh, from Hurricane Harvey. And our second topic, just recently, we talked about bioterrorism. During bioterrorism, we were actually going to talk about agroterrorism, but we didn't get there because we had so much to talk about bioterrorism. So my guest today, returning for her third time on the show, which is great. Every episode has been very uh, a great learning experience for everybody. I want to welcome back to the show Denise Grimm. Dee, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you. Well, I'm glad to hear that, you know, because you, you are keep coming back here. So you know, I know you're giving lots of information for our listeners and uh, teaching myself a new, this old dog, uh, a few new things too, which is great. Just in case we have uh, listeners who haven't heard either one of the other two shows, can you take a couple of minutes to introduce yourself, what you do, and you know um, how you got into what you're doing now? Um, sure. Uh, I am um, a former um, uh, Air Force uh, uh, working with uh, intelligence, um, so I've had an opportunity to work uh, with some issues related to terrorism and some international law. Uh, I'm a registered nurse, a uh, EMT and paramedic. Uh, I hold a uh, doctorate in law and a uh, couple of degrees in nursing and in journalism. Um, I've worked as an ED nurse for about 20 years and then uh, went into the emergency preparedness field for hospitals. 
So I worked with hospitals uh, for quite a few years doing consulting work for them on how to uh, prepare for disasters and uh, compliance with uh, hospital requirements for emergency management. Uh, I went on to uh, have an emergency preparedness consulting company where I've worked with jurisdictions um, such as the state of Nevada to develop their uh, statewide plans, uh, their mass care and sheltering plans, continuity of operation plans, and mass fatality plans. Uh, I uh, currently work with BCFS Health and Human Services down in Texas. We're a nonprofit uh, health and human service agency that coincidentally also has an emergency management division wherein we do actual response to disasters by operating medical shelters and doing other types of incident management uh, response for the federal government with FEMA and local jurisdictions. And I serve as the uh, Director of Business and Program Development to uh, do consulting and training and exercises for jurisdictions. So that's pretty much it wrapped up in a nutshell. I also work uh, down here in Texas. I uh, am the mayor of a small town and a municipal court judge. So it gives me an opportunity to work with jurisdictions on the uh, government level as well. So you're quite well-rounded and quite busy. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> to put it I am simply. that. I started my career when I was four, so that explains it. <laughs> well, that was just a couple of years then, right? <laughs> That's right, just a couple of years ago. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so our last show, we talked about bioterrorism. And we ran out of time because we didn't get to uh, the second part of what we thought we would uh, be talking about, and that's agroterrorism. So let's jump right in on that. Can you tell us what that is and provide some examples as to, you know, what is agroterrorism? Because to be honest, that's kind of a new term uh, for me with just the last couple of years. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's an area that uh, a lot of people are, are kind of being uh, introduced to uh, after uh, they've had experience with the bioterrorism, the chemical uh, warfare stuff. Uh, according to the FBI, a bioterrorism uh, we talked about already uh, was defined as the use of a uh, biological agent's uh, to cause harm to uh, humans. Agroterrorism is defined as a use or the threatened use of uh, biological, chemical, or radiological agents against some component of agriculture uh, in such a way to adversely impact the agricultural uh, industry. Uh, it's also the malicious use of plants or animal pathogens to cause disease in the agricultural sector and uh, the, the, the point really is, as in with most terrorism, is it's not so much about how much harm you cause, although for terrorists, the, the bigger bang for the buck is obviously being able to harm as many people as possible. But the bottom line in, in agro-terrorism, as in other forms of terrorism, is to affect and disrupt the society, uh, to affect the financial sociological, and uh, the, the fabric of the society that you have a, a, an issue with. So how do you create that into terrorism? Because, you know, I, I'm sitting here looking at the uh, wall in front of me, and I'm kind of thinking, so how do I use agriculture as a terrorism threat? Am I just throwing, you know, poison on the dirt? Like, what, what is it? How do you, how, how does it become terrorism? Well, it, 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 it is the, obviously it's the intent. Uh, is if the intent is to uh, disrupt the ag uh, process 
for society that causes mm. people to become ill or suffer, to cause financial damage, um, or change the, the society as you know it, that becomes terrorism. And unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of reasons that terrorists would want to use agroterrorism. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is probably one of the America's food supply and, and other countries as well, including Canada. Uh, the, the food supply is probably the most vulnerable and least protected of all potential targets of terrorists. Uh, we have hardened, when we talk about hardening our uh, infrastructures, I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount of money and time and effort that's gone into looking at threat assessments for our buildings and our critical infrastructures and our tourist locations that are potential targets and sports venues and critical uh, uh, business uh, places. But it's very hard to put a fence around agriculture in this country. Uh, So it becomes a very vulnerable uh, process to look at. There's so much exposure uh, that agriterrorism becomes uh, a fairly soft target and uh, actually, uh, Tommy Thompson, the former U.S. Health Secretary, made a statement one time years ago that he said uh, that for the life of him, he could not understand why terrorists have not attacked our food supply because it's so easy to do. And I was just going to ask that. Why, why is it so least protected then if it is so vulnerable and so such a, um, a good target? You know, I don't like saying that, but a good target too or for terrorism? Well, we, we have to look at what, what the targets are first. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's two main areas um, of, of targets. There is the livestock. There's the, the meat and the chicken and the pigs and the, and the livestock that we eat. And then there's also the, the plant base. So if you look at the density of farms in the United States and in Canada, for example, you, you can't put a, a, a perimeter fence around every farm. It just it, it isn't viable. Uh, mm-hmm. The agricultural products, Production in these countries is so geographically dispersed uh, in unsecure environments. When you look at livestock, uh, for example, they're frequently concentrated in confined areas like feedlots, pig farms, uh, or poultry farms, and they're not in areas that lend themselves to high secure uh, locations. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing is that this is a, a moving product. Live animals, grain, uh, processed foods are routinely transported and commingled in the production process of moving this, uh, these products around and having them processed. So the, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard target to contain, for one thing. Uh, a couple of other uh, issues that come up with um, agroterrorism is the fact that the presence of certain pest or disease in, within the country uh, can, can be readily uh, availed. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute when we talk about some of these uh, areas. And, the, and frankly, the number of lethal and contagious biological agents is really greater for plants and animals than they are for humans. In other words, we have more biological agents that can injure and make sick animals and plant crops than, than can humans. A lot of these diseases are environmentally resilient, they're endemic in foreign countries and are not harmful to humans. Now, why is that important? Because, again, the terrorists can introduce a biological agent that doesn't hurt him, which is much safer than being a suicide bomber carrying a, a backpack uh, full of explosives on your back. If you can 
spread an agent and then not have to get sick, that's an advantage for them. But also, uh, if you can get something in there and be gone by the time it takes effect, it's a safer thing to use for the um, terrorists. So would it say that, um, would it be fair to say that sometimes it's the logistical challenges is why um, you know, we haven't had a, an attack on you know farms because in your own description you know they're so spread out they're all over the place you know and you can't put fences oh. around these things is that the challenge you know, one challenge anyway I won't say the only but one challenge is the logistical part of it it is um, it, it's it's the upside downside I mean it has uh, these agents have been used uh, previously uh, they've been used in warfare. Uh, back in World War I, uh, the Germans used uh, glanders and anthrax to kill the horses, uh, cattle, and sheep of the Allied forces. Uh, back in uh, 1978, um, mercury was injected into oranges that were uh, introduced into Israel. In uh, 1989, uh, in California, there was actually a case of um, some domestic terrorists that released crop-eating medflies into California and caused uh, a huge problem. We have to also look at who these terrorists are because we, when we think of weapons of mass destruction, we do tend to think of the international terrorist kind of uh, idea. But mm-hmm. with ag, we have, other, um, we have other agents that are interested in doing bad things. In addition to the international terrorists, we have economic opportunists uh, that would... Uh, would, would profit from uh, economic uh, situations in our markets uh, for personal gain. We have domestic terrorists uh, that could potentially do that. And uh, we see those in some of the militant animal rights activists, for example. Uh, you may have heard of the Animal Liberation Front, ALF, uh, mm-hmm. which is a um, militant um, domestic group that believes that the use of animals for food is immoral and they would attack potentially uh, food industries to make a possible event. So there's a, a the broader scope of people that could possibly do this. With regards to to uh, the farms and the different kinds of people, if they're introducing something, and you gave some examples, um, we'll use oranges, is, is it not as successful or used by terrorists, terrorists because there are alternate ways to... Uh, provide the same product. Uh, as an example, if if we had an agro terrorist that attacked a farm in Pennsylvania, you know, and you know, did something to a whole bunch of crops, there's alternate farms in neighboring states that can actually fill that void, so it doesn't really impact as much. Is it, it, is that a reason why we we don't see as much? Um, that might that may be part of it too. That there are backup systems in place. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, the focus for agroterrorism is really not as much based on how much harm they can do. It's not the idea Mm -hmm. of introducing food or plants that people will eat and and, and sicken on. It really is more a focus towards the economic cost. So -hmm. when you look at United States uh, agriculture, um, it's a a $1.5 trillion business that employs about 15% of the workforce in the United States. Um, $115 billion worth of agriculture are exported from the United States, and it represents about 13% of our gross national product. So looking at that, if you um, bring in 
a agent that is going to destroy crops or destroy livestock, the economic cost is is really what they're going for. Uh, it would it, it could potentially produce a uh, multi-layered effect on the mm-hmm. decrease of the ag because the food-to-farm continuum is, is so large. It's not just what happens in the field or at the livestock. It's all the way down the chain of the, the, the animal or food product to the transport, to the distribution, to the um, – all of these areas right. are potential also uh, areas of attack – um, to the to the salad bar to the store, um, so it, it's a whole continuum uh, of concern uh, with these uh, with these areas. So, using my example with the one farm uh, in Philadelphia, that can scare people to not buy that product anymore, which impacts then you know all the examples you just went through. It becomes a trickle trickle effect. Right. Well, it, 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 yes, but also um, there there is a problem of um, how some of these diseases are transmitted. If you start in one um, feedlot or in one uh, poultry farm, that does not mean it's going to be restricted to it. And the best example I can think of that is the avian uh, influenza. So when uh, a couple years ago we had a, a huge outbreak in this country and the morbidity was, was 100% in commercial flocks, during 2015, 40-plus million birds needed to be culled in, in, in this country, um, and this was not out of, obviously out of one uh, farm. This is when it hit, it hit multiple farms. The other example, if you can uh, think back, is the uh, mad cow uh, situation, uh, because mad cow, once uh, it, it's detected, they, and they start putting animals down, then any export from that country, remember what happened in Great Britain, um, any export from mm-hmm. that country becomes non-existent. So even if your cow is not infected with it, you can no longer export the meat because it's banned from that particular country. So that becomes the ha- overarching problem. And then you get all that trickle-down, you know, economic, uh, big economic impact that you went through and, and described earlier. Exactly, exactly. Um, give you another scenario is foot and mouth disease. Uh, ag experts are pretty much unanimous in their assessment that uh, foot and mouth is probably the most lethal weapon somebody could come up with because it attacks any cloven foot animal, so cat, uh, cattle, sheep, twine, deer, elk, goats. And it's extremely contagious, 20 times more contagious than, than chicken uh, with smallpox. And it has a very large radius of up to 50 miles. It's airborne transmission from animal to animal. So, again, one feedlot, you have another feedlot 50 miles away. It has potential for, uh, for infecting uh, other feedlots. So when we talk about the number of animals at risk in the United States, you know, we have like 100 million cattle in this country. We have six, 60 million swine, some 7 million sheep, and 40 million wildlife a foot-and-mouth intended uh, transmission would affect all of those, those animals. And you're looking at uh, a scenario, as was done in an exercise a few years ago, that within five days of an attack like that, you would have it spread through, through half of the states in the United States. So that's the concern wow. is the potential uh, for that. And uh, th- that that is the the multiple factor on uh, this sort of situation. 
Wow. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Dee Grimm today about agroterrorism. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected and welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about agroterrorism with Dee Grimm, um, who's been a regular on the uh, show. Dee, in the first uh, segment, you were talking about some of the vulnerable spaces. Uh, you brought up uh, feedlots. And um, are there other places we should be uh, considering or thinking about? Oh, absolutely. Um, w- one of the reasons that we have some of the multiple uh, vulnerabilities in the, the feedlot uh, process and where we Conjugate a uh, large amount of animals. One of the problems is the way that we do business agriculturally, especially in the United States. Uh, there is an increased susceptibility of livestock to disease because of our husbandry pra- practices, uh, from our sterilization programs to overuse and misuse of antibiotics. Uh, we have a fairly inefficient passive disease reporting system. Because currently in this country, responsibility for reporting unusual occurrences of animal diseases lies with the producer of the livestock. And there are, would be significant disincentives from doing so because that, that's their bottom line. So in, in, in that setting, the owner of the uh, livestock or the uh, animals, uh, there's, there's not a good process there. So the, that feedstock area, the congregate animal area, it is vulnerable. 
But there's a, there are a lot of other potential targets. Uh, the transportation of animals, uh, the production animals. Once uh, the animal, and, and we should include our crops as well, once the, the crop is in and the animal is ready to go to uh, slaughter, that whole process of getting them to the food processing and food handling is an area that has potential um, uh, liability. Uh, we, we have a lot of very soft targets. Uh, the uh, centralized feed supply system and distribution system, uh, and we don't have a really good a traceability of a lot of animals in the feed process. So again, we've got a lot of areas that could potentially be vulnerable before it even gets to the consumer. So that's with animals. What about with plants? Is it the same okay, or well, is it different? Okay, well, there's another issue. Um, when we look at agritourism for crop agents, uh, there is a couple things that are important. Uh, one, that most of these agents are easy to handle, obtain, and deliver. It's not like having to go get a nuclear bomb and, and, and get plutonium. Uh, a lot of these uh, agents are, are, are naturally occurring in, in nature. You know, look at anthrax, um, shigatoxins, uh, plague, ricin, these are biological agents that you can contaminate food with that you can make ricin in your, in your basement. Uh, said, I think said before, I think I've accidentally made it when I've canned uh, a couple of things, um, uh, or at least uh, botulism. Uh, there are uh, plant pathogens that are easy to come by. Um, you know, we remember the, well, not personally, but we do uh, know the history of the potato uh, blight in uh, Ireland, uh, which was responsible for mass migration of people out of that country to the United States. Um, so it, it can be something as simple as a, a brown stripe downy mildew that, that covers certain plants, and that's naturally occurring. Uh, there's not any chemical control or host resistant available to a lot of these uh, agents for our crops, um, they can cause severe crop loss. Uh, it's easy to genetically ma manipulate a lot of these things. So th there, there are some easy, nasty stuff out there that we could take out a large amount of crops with. But again, though, with the, you know, the we could take out crops. Is it you know because we've got varied crops all over the place that it doesn't occur, you know, because I, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to wonder, you know, how, how come something, you know, I'm not trying to give any pointers here to terrorism, but, you know, if we've got something that's so vulnerable, you know, how, how can we protect our, ourselves from this kind of and, stuff? And, and why you know, haven't we and, I think the answer is because we're a reactive society. We, we, we tend to react to things and not be proactive. Because there has not been a massive uh, incident of intentional use, of, there's been situations and examples of it that have occurred, but because there's not been a massive uh, situation where a crop or a, a livestock uh, has been taken out, to the negative detriment of the country, uh, I, I don't think it's it's a spotlight. You know, we look at the the things that have occurred. Obviously, uh, the bombings, uh, the uh, terrorists using more conventional uh, weapons, uh, chemical attacks, 
and, and those have occurred, so we, we tend to spend our time and our focus on those sort of things. Because we haven't had a big event happen related to agroterrorism, I don't think it's, it's on a lot of people's forefront, including terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I seriously doubt uh, that training that's done in some of your terrorist ta- camps is focused on agroterrorism. I, I, it is more likely to be focused on things like suicide bombings, and that's what they're training people to do. However, my concern is just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't. Correct. You know, it's you, like we say in the uh, business continuity disaster realm, you know, it's a matter of when, not if. Exactly. And, we, and, and we're not self-contained when it comes to foods. We have a lot of foods, uh, sources that come in from, uh, that are hoarded. Um, and and that's, that's a concern, too. When we look at the amount of food importation, I mean, the U.S. imports about a quarter of its fresh and frozen fruits and brings in almost 10 million shipments of imported food. Uh, when we look at that, there is an opportunity uh, to bring in uh, things that are susceptible to our crops from outside the United States. So how that's in, that's an interesting point. If we bring in all this food from other parts of the world, how do we know that they haven't been contaminated, you know, or or livestock not contaminated somewhere else and then brought into Canada or the U.S. or something being shipped into Europe or anywhere in the world? How do we protect yeah, ourselves against something like that? That's a good question, and that is the job of the um, inspectors at our um, ports. Uh, the USDA uh, has uh, inspectors. Uh, Department of Homeland Security has inspectors that uh, do look at these uh, ports of entry, and uh, there are international treaties and standards. Uh, at the point of entry inspections, uh, look at um, clearing uh, products before they leave their point of origin, uh, and there are biosecurity practices uh, that the USDA um, does participate in. Uh, unfortunately, we aren't ex- are not capable at this time of inspecting 100% of the uh, products that are coming in. According to government estimates, uh, while the USDA has the available inspectors to inspect up to 16% of imported meat and poultry, and that's only 16%. Uh, DSH, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, can only inspect approximately 1% of their imports. So we, we, do have a, we do have a gap in our ability to uh, check the imports as they come in. That, so there's got obviously some training for these people in place to help identify you know, uh, some of these agents that are out there, right? Oh, absolutely. And um, we, we have, I mean, it's, we have processes in place. You know, to say that uh, our ag is, is not secure is, is a, a blanket statement, and it certainly is a soft target. But there are processes in place. Uh, we, we work with state entities, federal entities as well. As I mentioned, FDA, USDA, uh, there's also a very um, uh, good connection with public health, public health, because again, public health is going to see these 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 cases. But more importantly, it's the veterinarian service that uh, needs to be involved in this because they're the ones that understand what these diseases are well before they either eat, reach the human population 
or the animal um, becomes uh, terminal. So uh, you and I may not know what glanders is, uh, but a vet does. And a vet can say, this is, there's something wrong here. So we really need to be working with the veterinarians uh, and animal control and the health department. This is, this is a coordinated effort uh, to be aware of and, and respond to these kind of disasters because it's not the guns and hoses that law enforcement usually gets involved in. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned vets and animal services again and public health, because I know you mentioned the same thing in uh, the, the bioterrorism show. You mentioned working with those agencies. So if, if they're key for animal you know, um, uh, illnesses and things like that, identifying, are they the same people that we would use in agroterrorism because they, they are so well-versed on different uh, diseases and you know, plant Plant uh, diseases, Absolutely. I guess. Absolutely, the 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 vet is more likely, um, or or your ag people in your community are more likely to see, recognize, and appreciate that that a disease process is not doesn't look right. Uh, again, when we talked in bioterrorism, and you'd ask, well, how do you know that this is uh, the avian uh, influenza as opposed to the regular flu? The same thing applies with agroterrorism. If you get a large number of animals that present with unusually um, fatal symptoms uh, that, you, that normally doesn't kill them, uh, when they present in large numbers, when they present at unusual times, uh, it, it's got to let of that know there's something that's not really right here. And that's when they need to be working with the uh, public health, law enforcement to, to be able to say, we, we may have something going on here that is intentionally done as opposed to uh, artificially, uh, I mean, as opposed to naturally occurring. So, so with the vets and some of these other groups that you mentioned, do they come into play when something has happened or should they or are they involved proactively? Like, do they work with some of the inspectors in place to say this is what you look for? Uh, you know, are they involved on that level? Um, yes. Uh, again, USDA has a um, ha- has a section called the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, uh, as issued regulations that help reduce the threat of biological agents um, by uh, education to these the ag places and to veterinarians. Uh, there, there are other detection and response processes going on. Like, as I mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security has a Food and Agriculture Sector Coordinating Council that oversees food security and incident management. Uh, DSH also uh, is in charge of Customs and Border C- Patrol ag specialists who are looking not at illegal entry by people, but looking at entry that's not right in agriculture. Uh, there is a national veterinary stockpile of uh, medications and uh, agents that can fight some of these uh, bad things. Uh, there is a national plant disease recovery system. Uh, there's surveillance by the Food and Agriculture Information Sharing Analysis Center. I mean, th- there, there are agencies and programs out there that are looking at, at these items. I, I think that the Awareness level is probably more at the emergency management, USDA level, not so much at the local level for the farmer, for the um, 
food producer, and that's an awareness level that uh, we really would like to teach uh, farmers and and uh, producers and uh, processors of food uh, to to th- there's certain things that farmers can do to reduce the threat. In other words, so what kind of things can they do? Well, actually, before we go there, I, I, I was just wondering with public health, would public health agencies be at a national, state, provincial um, slash provincial or local level, or is it at all levels for public health? probably be at all levels. Um, as we all know, disasters all start locally. Um, so the local public health uh, and their role would be to quarantine and isolate infected animals. Um, they would assist to identify threats to local agriculture and industry. Uh, they would conduct a vulnerability assessment uh, of potential ag-, ag targets. So you can see that they're going to be needing to work with emergency managers on that. They may conduct epidemiological studies, uh, advise the public on sanitation precautions, and then work with USDA, FDA, law enforcement uh, to assist with, uh, and local emergency management, to assist with the response process, including assisting with euthanasia and disposal of of animals if they needed to uh, put them down. Well, on that, we've come to the end of our second segment, because in the next segment, Dee, I want to talk to you what we can do uh, to put in place, you know, how we can increase some of that awareness and what we should uh, do. We're talking with Dee uh, Grimm about agro-terrorism, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You 
You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about agroterrorism with D. Grimm. D, uh, we, we kind of touched on it in the last segment, but I wanted to make sure I saved it all for this uh, final uh, segment of the show here. What kind of things can we do, you know, to increase our safety and security, you know, uh, for growers and ranchers and farmers, you know, and different people in the uh, agricultural area, you know, at, at all levels? What can we put in place to help us with this? Well, and we can uh, approach this from a couple different levels, starting with um, the local level, uh, starting at the actual producer of the crop or producer of the, the livestock. Um, and there are, there are ways to um, increase vigilance. Obviously, as with all um, emergency management, it, increased vigilance sometimes simply means awareness and aware mm-hmm. that it could happen to you. It's not some bad movie that somebody puts out that it could happen to you. So we start with trying to educate uh, local uh, farms about things that are easy to do. We're not talking about bringing in a a security fence that's 10 feet high and costs a million dollars, but we talk about perhaps securing your buildings. In other words, don't leave uh, doors unlocked uh, if you have a produce in there. Uh, Create and implement a visitor policy. In other words, if somebody's showing up at your farm, some of these big, large um, stock, uh, livestock and uh, poultry production places, they get a lot of um, people in and out of there. So having a, a visitor um, policy uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, thinking about uh, the farm traffic, the animal movement and sanitation, how that potentially could be vulnerable and looking at ways to secure that. Uh, having an employee security and awareness program. Uh, thinking about uh, requiring, and when we talk about reducing the potential risk of infection, doing things like uh, when you want to protect your animals from contamination or infection and personal sanitation, having things like ensuring visitors wear clean boots and clothing if they've visited from other farm facilities so it reduces the, the risk of uh, contamination. Uh, buying only the amount of pesticides that you need for the season and avoid carryover, keeping your pesticides locked up and controlled access to them, keeping a, a pesticide inventory. Um, don't import seeds or plants from other countries illegally. I mean, that's kind of common sense. And then mm-hmm. uh, reporting any unusual crop problems or signs of foreign plant disease, anything that looks bad, to your local county agent immediately. So, again, it's like we talked about with bioterrorism. It's not about being paranoid. It's not about um, being uh, thinking that the world's coming to end, but it is uh, about being vigilant. And as we said before, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean somebody's not after you. So it, it, That's it, true. Professional paranoid, if you want to call it, but i rather call it vi- vigilance and situational awareness. Yeah, that, which is you know, what we preach in the disaster business continuity. Well, you know, exactly. we say that nonstop. <laughs> so it should be exactly. no different, really. So how and, about and on, on the, the state and federal level, uh, we do yeah. have um, a uh, we have something called the Multi-State Partnership for Security and Agriculture 
that uh, I believe 14 states in the Midwest, the Great Plains and area, and some other areas have created to coordinate emergency preparedness and response measures. So at the state level, your your ag, uh, your state ag uh, folks are looking at this and are doing some multi-state partnerships for security. So is, does that mean, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess that's two states here, um, Iowa and uh, Illinois, their state uh, agencies that look after agriculture, they're talking with each other to help identify, you know, yes. uh, risk and, mitigation, and things like that, that kind of thing? That, yes, yes. Obviously, your states that, that, that are mainly your, your uh, crop and livestock areas have greater risk, uh, so they're looking at those things uh, more closely, absolutely. Just out of curiosity, if if one state has a problem, do do they work with other states to say, you know, don't accept our our product or don't um, allow this product to leave this state or something like that? Are are there those kind of measures in place between states as well? I know I know I, between I countries. Like, I would are. like to think there are. Uh, I, I can't I can't tell you individually on a yeah. state by state level what that process is. Um, I believe that's something that needs to be coordinated at the federal level as well, um, because you cannot necessarily guarantee which state, uh, in which direction that particular fungus or um, uh, airborne uh, avian flu is, what direction it's going in. So it really needs to be on a federal um, practice as well. So. It- with our last piece of this segment, what happens, what do we do if something does happen? What's currently in place? Let's say a, a crop or, um, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, what's it, hoof and mouth disease? I think you yeah. was the one example you moved, uh, said but, in the first segment. Yeah. What if something like that occurs? What What kind of plans are in place or do we need to have in place to address things like that? Well, again, as we mentioned a, a, a little earlier when we are talking about what we're doing on a uh, federal level, uh, there, is, uh, there, there are tracking mechanisms and uh, there's intelligence collecting of information about biological uh, weapons that could be used. That is being done on the, the federal level. Um, biosecurity practices obviously uh, are, are important that are in place uh, that we are being educated on, educating veterinarians. Uh, again, at the local level, because that's where it's going to start, I think it really goes back to situational awareness, is understanding that there are potentials for this kind of activity, that on the local level, you know your farms, you know your crops, and when you see things start going bad, that, it, again, if it doesn't look right, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right, that that should mm-hmm. give you the situational awareness at least to reach out uh, to your local uh, county agent or your local vets and say, and, and that's what a, a prudent farmer would do anyway. If he had uh, sick animals, he's going, he's going to reach out to the vets. But, again, keeping uh, an eye on those things we talked about, such as this is occurring in an unusual setting, it's an unusual presentation, uh, it, this isn't. This isn't. This shouldn't be happening uh, in in this manner. It should give you at least enough awareness to to reach out and say we potentially have a problem here, and let the state uh, folks come in or the the vets come in and take a look at things and say we, we potentially have a problem and we need to go up the the chain uh, to get it addressed. 
Well, I, I know uh, I've seen it on the news. Uh, I won't say a lot, but even when you find one case of uh, mad cow disease, it's all across the news. Everybody knows what's exactly. going on. Exactly. You know, and and that's, so, that's an easy example because everybody knows what that is. But um, there are so many, unless you're a veterinarian or you work a, in, in the farming industry, you're not familiar with a lot of these uh, agents that uh, you see on a regular basis. I mean, a lot of us don't have never seen foot and, and mouth disease or, or don't understand um, bovine uh, spongiform encephalitis. You know, so we, mm-hmm. we just don't recognize that stuff. We just know our animal's sick. So let's look at the last bit. Let's say somebody gets sick, you know, due to some sort of an agricultural uh, terrorist event. What kind of things are there available to us from the healthcare system? You know, yourself being a nurse, you know, how should we, how do we identify that, you know, hey, this piece of corn that I have, as an example, you know, has made me sick? You know, how do, how do we <laughs> identify it and how do we treat it? Uh, again, going back to situational awareness, um, you may recall back in 1994, there was a salmonella poisoning in Oregon by a cult, uh, a Rajnishi cult, uh, that decided it wanted to win a local election. So it went into food, uh, food bars, into the uh, buffets, and it sprayed salmonella in the uh, food bars. It made 751 people ill. Unfortunately, no one thought that this was an intentional act and wasn't even discovered it was an intentional act until quite some time later when one of the cult members confessed that they had done that. Now, I don't know about you, but if 751 people walked into my ED and they all had the same illness, I would be highly suspicious that something has happened that isn't normal. So again, Mm -hmm. going back to situational awareness, uh, again, looking at things that occur that are not normal, that don't look right, it probably should have a closer eye on it. So it really, if it, you know, if I get sick, you'll go to the healthcare no matter what, right? Pretty right. logical. And we're going to treat, you know. we're going to treat you uh, regardless of what, what the agent is, we're going to treat you symptomatically for that. So if you are, have botulism introduced, we're going to treat you by putting you on a ventilator for about four months and, uh, and, and, and treating the illness, um, the idea hopefully is to uh, catch it in time so that more people are, aren't sick and more animals aren't, aren't uh, hurt and crops aren't destroyed. Right. You know, and if you see a pattern, you know, like you said, you know, multiple people like me walking with the same symptoms, then, uh, you know, as with the example with the salmonella and the salad bars, you know, say, hey, there's something going on here, you know. You, can, exactly. you, you, you're able to be in a position to help identify that and then start escalating and communicating where you need to, to find out what's causing this. Absolutely. I, I think that's a, that's a great takeaway. So we only have about four minutes left uh, in the show. Do you have any closing comments that you would like to say, you know, that maybe we didn't uh, touch on with regards to agroterrorism? Again, I think uh, going back and rounding it out uh, as an overview, it is yet another tool in the terrorist toolkit if they choose to use it. It has some ease of use uh, that makes it attractive to the uh, individual that wants to do something bad. It is not, it's not a high, uh, it's, it's not high on the list. Uh, 
of uh, folks that, that I'm aware of, and I, I don't see a lot of books out there about how to cook up agro-terrorism um, agents. Um, but again, it's, it's just a matter of situational awareness. There's potential. And where there's potential, people are going to look at that. Um, so be vigilant, be aware, and if you see something, say something. Yeah, it just it just something just jumped in my mind. What's the reason then we get asked when we land back in the U.S. or Canada or in anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world? So far, I've been asked, "Did I go to a farm?" Why do I get asked that question then? Well, th- and that's really a very very good um, reason that we worry about this is because uh, again, th- these agents occur naturally in uh, most areas. And they're very easily transmitted uh, by what you're wearing on your shoes, what you have on your clothes. Uh, And and as you know, there's many things you can't bring into other countries because they're not endemic to that area or because they've created uh, crop issues uh, in other areas because they're not endemic there. So we we do have a great deal of vulnerability on a day-to-day basis doing business as normal of uh, having problems with uh, agents that occur naturally that you can transmit from animal stock or to plant stock simply by the course of what you do on a daily basis. So that question is kind of one of those uh, risk mitigation factors, right, to identify and make sure that um, uh, part of the U.S. DA and the inspectors, they're asking that question to help mitigate bringing something in that shouldn't be. Exactly. And, and that's one of the reasons that we look at one of those uh, strategies for uh, crop protection, for example, is the things that we talked about, wearing clean boots and shoes if they visited from another farm, having an employee uh, a personal sanitation program uh, to make sure that uh, you are maintaining protection for your animals from contamination or infection because there's an awful lot of these agents that naturally occurring are infectious and cross over into other um, into other crops. And and like you said, you know, I I visited a farm. I could be completely fine, but something that's on my genes that I'm bringing back could actually cause the problem, right? Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, completely unintentional, but that's why where what could start an issue. And that's the reason why there, there are such um, strict questions about, were you at a farm? What what could you possibly have brought mm-hmm. with you that we didn't want to, to come into our uh, jurisdiction or our country? Great. Well, we've come to the end of our show. Dee, thank you very much. I know I told you this during the break, but I'm going to say it here for everyone to listen. This has been a, quite an eye-opener for me because I haven't really heard anyone speak regarding agroterrorism. So I've learned a lot here uh, on, on this show, and I hope uh, many of the listeners out there have and given them food for thought, no pun intended. You know, so thank you very much uh, for this. You know, you've really opened my eyes on this uh, subject. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, and it's always a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, my pleasure to have you here. Uh, always eye opening and always learning a few new things here, which is great. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody. Um, if you've got a topic you want us to talk about, again, please feel free. Send me an email. If they, you want to talk about a product or service you've got out there, you know, again, reach out to me. We've got opportunities for you. Um, today's show was brought by brought to us by Stone Road and Boast Assessment Tool. You know, help monitor your program's uh, progress. And in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. 
thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.